Good morning to you. The year was 1987. I was about 12 years old. Ozzie Smith was making highlight reel catches seemingly every single game. Vince Coleman stole over 100 bases for the third consecutive season. Jack Clark would belt 35 home runs despite playing at the cavernous confines of St. Louis's 60s-style stadium that was multi-purpose, which meant it served no purpose well. Just to keep things interesting, Jose Okendo, our utility infielder, would play every single position except for catcher in a single game, and I, and I think every position that season. Now, the Cardinals had already won the 82 World Series, and they went back as the NL champs in 85, and in that 87 season, they would go to the series again. And so on any given sweltering summer day, Bush Stadium's PA would blare out, and I remember it quite well, Cool in the Gang song, celebrate good times, come on! You know that one, right? Yeah. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, similar to the summer of 87 back in St. Louis, Nehemiah 12 was a season to celebrate good times. Verse 27 speaks of the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And dedication is a familiar word, Hanukkah. You know the word Hanukkah if you live in this area. Modern Hanukkah commemorates the rededication of the temple after its desecration at the hands of the Seleucid strongman Antiochus Epiphanes. But Nehemiah 12 speaks of a different Hanukkah, a different dedication. It is not of the temple, but it is the walls of Jerusalem that had recently been rebuilt. You've got to remember that up to this point, Nehemiah had been so singularly focused on building the wall and guarding the city that they had not stopped as a people to celebrate and consecrate, to dedicate what God had just done in their mix. So, from the 20 verses in the back half of Nehemiah 12, we are going to discover five spiritual truths about our consecration based on the consecration of the wall in Jerusalem. That is our task today. And with that in mind, I'd invite you to turn in the Word of God to Nehemiah 12. We'll be starting at verse 27. Nehemiah 12, 27. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. If you grab the Blue Pew Bible uh, in front of you, I believe Nehemiah 12, 27 is on page 516. And uh, you're welcome to turn there. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite You to please speak this morning through Your Word. We're in Scripture that is seldom preached on. If we get to the Old Testament, we don't typically get to Nehemiah. If we get to Nehemiah, we obsess on the first few chapters and pretend there's no rest of a book. And, and yet today we're in uh, Scripture that often gets left on the table. But you tell us that every word is inspired of you. That no prophet spoke from his own will, but their pens were moved by the Holy Spirit. And it's useful for, and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us that we might be thoroughly equipped for all that you have for us. So today, Lord, will you allow these five principles to come uh, clearly in our minds, but more importantly, would you seat them in our hearts that we would walk in them in our days, that we would celebrate your great goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen? So the Word of God says in Nehemiah 12, beginning at verse 27, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. And so so Nehemiah gets all the Levites that are all throughout the land. He brings them to Jerusalem because they're going to celebrate. Uh, With cymbals and harps and lyres and, and the sons of the singers gathered from the district surrounding Jerusalem, from the village of the uh, Netophanites, and also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Gebza, and, and Amanzabeth, and from the singers uh, had built for themselves villages from Jerusalem, around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites, they purify themselves. So, so on one hand, they're singing. On another hand, they're purifying themselves so that then they can purify the people, so then they can purify the gates and the walls. And Nehemiah writes, verse 31, and I brought the leaders of Judah, so the whole area, up onto the wall. The leaders were standing on the high point, And I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And one went south on the wall to the Dun Gate, and after them went Hoshashiah, the half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, and Ezra, and Meshulam, and Judah, and Benjamin, and Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, and Zechariah, the son of Jothan, and, and uh, Jonathan, and, and the son of Shemaiah, the son of uh, Mataniah, and the son of Micaiah, and on and on and on, and we get to verse 36. And with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, And then Ezra the scribe went before them. Remember the book of Ezra? Ezra had been brought back out of retirement to be at this moment. Ezra the scribe was with them, verse 36. And at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall and above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And the other choir, so that was just one choir, but then there was the second choir. And the other choir of those gave thanks, they went to the north. One went from the south around the wall, one went from the north around the wall. And Nehemiah went with this group. Ezra went with that group. Nehemiah went with this group. And I followed with them. Half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Aniel and the tower of a hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me and the priests of Elikiah and Messiah and all of them. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader, verse 42. And as they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. So you have what's happening on the walls with the leadership and the priesthood and the Levites. Then you have what's happening in the city and it's everybody. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Far away. Verse 44, on that day men were appointed over the storerooms and the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required for the law that the priests and the Levites according to the fields and their towns and for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered to them. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. What the Scriptures had told them long ago, they were doing. They were doing it with joy. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Everybody gave to the Lord, and therefore everything that needed to be done for the Lord was done. There was enough. And that, that's our passage today. And so the first thing we see is the thing that's impossible to miss. 
And it's this, because it's really easy to miss in our living, even if it's really easy to see in our passage. It's this, in your bulletins, it's number one. Spiritual consecration involves our intentional jubilation over the Lord's goodness to us. Our intentional jubilation over the Lord's goodness to us. So so the first principle of spiritual consecration is that spiritual consecration involves our intentional jubilation over the Lord's goodness to us. You can't miss this in the passage. Most of the verses in our passage deal with this subject. Nehemiah, he assembles all of the Levites from all throughout the nation. And he has them converge in celebration at the wall's dedication. Verse 27 says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from wherever they lived. And they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs and thanksgiving. Verse 28 notes, the Levites were joined by the singers. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophilites, from Beth Gilgal, and from Geba and Amanza, and for all the areas that the singers had built in the towns around Jerusalem. Now these Levites and these singers, well, they were organized into two massive great choirs. Verse 31 tells us, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall where everybody could see and everybody could hear and the acoustics were best. And I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One proceeded on the top of the wall to the right, to the dung gate, and half of the leaders followed them. Verse 36 tells us that Ezra was brought out of retirement for this moment, and he was going to lead that choir that was going to go around from the south. And then Nehemiah took the other great choir. Verse 38 says the second great choir proceeded in the opposite direction. That is going southward. And I follow them. Nehemiah would lead this choir on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens and the broad wall and on and on stopping at a certain point. Verse 27 says these choirs, they sang... They sang accompanied with music, with with, with cymbals and and harps and lyres. Verse 34, uh, they were accompanied with priests who blew great trumpets. Verse 36 tells us that certain saints played various musical instruments that were commanded and commended back in the days of David, the man of God. Now how did they sing? Was Was it a mournful dirge? Or was it a cheerful splurge? Verse 27 says they celebrated joyfully. The dedication with songs of thanksgiving. Verse 40 says, the two choirs gave thanks. Verse 43 adds, on the day they offered sacrifices rejoicing because God had given them great joy. This wasn't manufactured. This wasn't expected. God had given them great joy and they released that joy from their souls in their songs. And the women and children They also rejoiced. Now, now two things couldn't be more clear from our text, friends. Number one, God people sang with great joy, and they sang with great volume. For the sound of the rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Far away. Far away. Nehemiah 12 is a powerful demonstration that, that spiritual consecration involves our intentional jubilation over God's goodness. And yet... How easily we take God's goodness for granted, don't we? How easily we take our health for granted until we're unhealthy. How easily we take our house for granted until the bank wants it back. Or the roof decides it wants to give us a pool in the living room. How much do we loathe our jobs until we lose our jobs? Do you follow? 
It's hard to be joyous for Jesus, not because Jesus isn't good, but because we take his goodness for granted. And when it's not good, that's when he gets our attention. We need to be intentional in our jubilation. Spiritual consecration involves intentional jubilation over the Lord's goodness to us. I want to take you on a tour of a few scriptures. They're in your bulletin today. The psalmist says in Psalm 150 and verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath, that includes you. That includes you. The prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah 25, 1, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you've done wonderful things. The chronicler in 1 Chronicles 16, 34 urges each of us to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The mighty Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan potentate whose word was feared, but God humbled him. After a severe humbling from the Lord, mighty Nebuchadnezzar cried out in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for his works are right, and all of his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And the prophet Habakkuk wrote, In times of desolation and desperation, he still saw the goodness of God when things were hard. In Habakkuk 3, he famously writes, Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. I will be joyful in my Savior. There are people in Zimbabwe today whose stomachs are hungry and they're worshiping Jesus with enthusiasm. Some of your relatives went through the Great Depression where an apple was a Christmas gift. And they gathered on Sunday and they worshiped with joy. The Apostle Paul and his gospel companion Silas were attempted to be silenced by wicked authorities and they received a brutal beating and they spent a night in the Philippians' pokey. And those servants, though, were still filled with praise, bruised as they were, battered, tattered, shattered, The Bible says in Acts 16, 25, about midnight, long after the sun set, and in ancient cultures you went to bed when the sun set, they were up many hours afterwards. Paul and Silas at midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them because they had never heard anything come from the cell block that sounded like that, I suspect. Praise is not just for God's glory, friends, but praise is also for our good. And you need to understand that. Praise is not just for God's glory, it's also for our good. God knows the power of praise and he wants you to know it too. Praise is sort of a tonic to the soul of a saint. Show me a saint who doesn't release in praise and I'll show you one who sits soaking and souring. God urges us in Ephesians 5. God urges us in Ephesians 5 to address one another in psalms and in hymns and with spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, not just our words. Giving thanks always and for everything. 
that God the Father has done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, it's not just Bible people who knew that, that spiritual consecration involves our intentional jubilation regarding the Lord's goodness to us. Um, this has been an open secret among the saints for as long as there have been saints. Uh, for instance, Martin Luther knew this truth very well. Uh, Martin Luther wrote, and I'll quote here, music is a fair and glorious gift of God. Amen? I am strongly persuaded, this is Luther, that after theology there is no art that can be placed on a level with music. For besides theology, music is the only art capable of affording peace and joy to the heart. He goes on and writes, the devil flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Hmm. Now Luther not only praised the value of godly music, he produced some of the best of it. Almost 500 years ago, he penned the following, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doss asked who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Now the old Zimbabwean pioneer missionaries faced a lot of hardships to first ones to go out down to the valley and plant churches. Uh, some of them lost children. All of them battled with malaria and dysentery and wild animals and resistant hearts, and there were language barriers and cultural barriers. And uh, Kim's grandpa built uh, a house made mud bricks. The elephants would come and step on them. Can't build a house with stepped-on bricks, right? Like, it was just frustrating. And those sturdy, steady saints used to sing a simple children's chorus whenever the enemy would try to sink them. Remember it? It's amazing what praising can do. There's a, a line later in the song. I don't worry when things go wrong. Jesus fills my heart with a song. It's amazing what praising can do. My good wife has sung that to me when I was ready to strangle someone for Jesus. <laughs> and it helped. Luther was right. Scripture is right. Praising can be a tonic when grouching is chronic. It's amazing what praising can do. Friends, wouldn't our lives be immeasurably enriched if we began to follow Psalm 95? Literally, intentionally, and corporately. Psalm 95 goes a bit like this. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God the great king above all gods. And in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him, and the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Now, you can do this with many psalms. You can do it with Psalm 96 and 98 and 100 and on and on and on and on and on. 
The point is, spiritual consecration involves our intentional jubilation over the Lord's goodness to us. And if we're not intentional, the devil's going to make sure it doesn't happen. That's just how it is. If you're not intentional in your jubilation over the Lord's goodness, you will only see the six things that you wish were different and not the 600 that most people would be thanking God if it was happening in their life at this moment. Embedded in many of those same verses is our second point today. Our second point today. Spiritual consecration involves our intentional inclusion of all those among us. Spiritual consecration involves our intentional inclusion of all of those among us. Now, we've already seen how Nehemiah uh, brought back Ezra out of retirement. He included the aged Ezra. And then he summoned the Levites from throughout all the land, not just the ones nearby, but anyone he could get by. Uh, he, he called on the sons of the singers from their various villages. He made two massive choirs, and he incorporated all the leaders of Judea, whether they could sing or not. But I want you to notice verse 43, because you'll miss it easily amongst all the celebrities. It was not just the movers and the shakers who were pressed into jubilant service as music makers. It was not just the vocally gifted and the instrumentally talented. No, the Bible is quite clear in verse 43 to say this. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Now, here it is. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. In, in patristic societies, that wasn't how everyone celebrated. But when God's people celebrated, everyone was invited to praise the name of God Almighty. Anyone and everyone was asked and tasked to worship this great and gracious God. For spiritual consecration always involves the intentional inclusion of all those among us. Now, we try and do this practically at Calvary. We have the little people with us the first half of the service. That means it's a little tighter in the first half of the service, right? That means the first half of the service, you know, you might have somebody talking or coughing or opening a sweetie packet when you're trying to listen or sing, right? Why do we do that? We don't have to do that. We could have more seats for more visitors. It would be easier, less, less disruptive if we just put them all down in quarantine from the beginning. Some churches do that. We do that on purpose because of principles like this in Scripture. We want them to learn to praise Jesus with the rest of us. Statistics are clear that in churches that utterly segregate their services by age, those youngsters who are spirited away so they don't get in the way never learn the way, and when they grow up, they go their own way. Overwhelmingly, it is true. When they graduate out of their graded program, having only known church that was totally tailored to their tiny little preferences, they never learn to give a sacrifice of praise, do they? And so I want you to remember that the next time the colicky infant cries or the exuberant toddler interjects, thank God that we're a church that still has little ones, amen? Many churches would gladly take the noise of tots and the need to watch their tiny cots over a graying congregation in slow stagnation that's heading to inevitable cessation. Amen? Friends, we have much to celebrate. Let's make room for everyone Jesus is sending us. 
for those whose hearts have come to life through the aid of, of drums and, and guitar strums. There's room for you at Calvary. And, and for those who are moved by majestic organs and historic hymns, there's room for you at Calvary. But you know what? Worship isn't about us. It's about Jesus. You and I need to make a sacrifice of praise. There are things that aren't to our liking. That's okay. So that there is room at Calvary for that other brother to savor the Savior because spiritual consecration involves our intentional inclusion of those God is sending to worship Him. Now, that doesn't mean that anything goes in worship. It doesn't mean that worship at Calvary is a free-for-all brawl where the lowest common denominator is our worship incubator. We have standards. We look studiously at the words and we think carefully about what we're going to sing. But God doesn't call us to entertain the goats, friend. He calls us to feed the sheep. And we try hard to honor Jesus with every song, to bring a sacrifice of praise, to appeal to different groups who this is how their heart worships Jesus and the words are theologically solid and people are using their gifts and talents as the Lord has given them. And I thank God for that. This is not a performance up here, is it? Doesn't look like one, doesn't feel like one. Some Sundays it may not sound like one. That's okay. We're worshiping not performing. Now, verse 3. You're going to start, uh, point 3 today is a shift. Spiritual consecration involves, this is a little bit of an ouch one, uh, involves our intentional purification. Spiritual consecration. You can't consecrate something unless you purify it, unless you set it apart to consecrate, to set apart. Spiritual consecration involves our intentional purification from the things that would otherwise defile us from the things that would otherwise defile us. I want you to look again at verse 30. And the priests and the Levites, they purified who? Themselves. Then they purified the people. Then they purified the wall. I want you to notice the order. The priests and the Levites purified themselves only. And only then did they purify the people and the gates and the walls. Friends, you know what the Bible says? You know what Jesus says? That Jesus says we must take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of somebody else. That doesn't mean there's never a place to help a brother in need. It just means that we need to be careful that we don't listen to the Bible as for them. When God speaks of confession and contrition and purification, Satan will always try to get us to fixate on our neighbor and his need. He needs to be more generous. She needs to speak in ways that are, that are less malicious and more gracious and less salacious. They need to be more committed and less double-minded. But when God speaks to us in his word, he speaks to us. Not them. Before we can assist our neighbor, we have to get our own house in order. Amen? Now, God intends to use us as his instruments. He intends to use us to be how he does heart surgery on those around us who need a new heart, a clean heart, a heart for Jesus. But God is no fool. No surgeon worth his salt will do open heart surgery with filthy instruments. Amen? And so each of us must go into the Savior's autoclave for some cleansing from time to time that we might be effective instruments in leading people to Jesus. Now, if there's rust and dust where there used to be vigor and rigor in our witness, then I want you to remember Romans 12, 11. Romans 12, 11 says, never be lacking in zeal. 
but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We're going to say that together because you all look really passive for a verse that's really active. It says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Does that describe you? If that describes you, praise God. If that's something you aspire to, then pray to God that you would never be lacking in zeal, but keeping your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. White hot Christians catch fire, don't they? Now, if you're tired from all this tilling and you're seeing precious little reaping and you're discouraged, I want you to remember the promise of Galatians 6 9. Galatians 6 9. And let us not grow weary for doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Many of you have been sharing with me as we have been praying that we'd be a perfume in the room and, and God would give us up front in our face opportunities to share that are so clear we can't walk away from. Many of you have been sharing with me how God has started answering that. And you're starting to get opportunities. And, and people are actually coming and saying there's something different about you or, or you're so loving or what happened there? Why, why did you react that way? Don't go weary in living for Christ. And in time, you'll have an opportunity to talk for Christ. It's been well said that you are probably the only Bible many people will ever read. Do they want to close the book when they meet you? Or do they want to hear the next chapter? Now, some of us, it's, it's, it's fervor and, and zeal we need. Some of us, it's, it's a weariness of waiting to see the progress. But, but for some of us, the issue of being in the autoclave is different. Uh, maybe you've let the sewer of sin into your heart, and the stain of sin has cleaned your hands. And if so, the Bible has an answer to that, and that's James chapter 4. James chapter 4 says, well, wash your hands, you sinners, and, and, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God, and He will... Well, he'll hate you and have nothing to do with you and can't believe that you weren't holy in the first place. It's not what it says. That's what the devil says. He says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. It's the devil that's telling you you're dirty, stay away. Your Savior's saying you're dirty, come here, let's fix that. Humble yourselves before the Lord, the Bible says. Humble yourself. Now maybe that old liar of a devil is throwing back in your face all the muck and yuck that you've indulged in. And perhaps he's whispering, you know, God can't use you. Maybe he's saying something like, you can't clean up a dirt clod. And that's what you are. Well, friends, stop listening to that old brimstone whisperer and renew your mind with Scripture. The author and perfecter of our faith tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just forgive us, he cleanses us. Not from some of it, from all of it. It is the devil who's telling you, you can't be used. It's the Savior who's saying, but you're who I've chosen. The Father told the Son, you are the light of the world. The Son told us, you are the light of the world. That is the mission he has given to the Christian. Now, once our hearts are right, there's an urgent need to heed that we, that, that we would maintain what we have so scrupulously ain't, uh, attained. That we, we get to a point where we're right and it's easy to fall back down. And that's where point four comes in. Spiritual consecration involves our intentional preparation 
through the implementation of precautions so our consecration is not lost through careless negligence. That's a mouthful. That's why I write it down in your outline. I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to explain it in simple terms. Spiritual consecration involves our intentional preparation. You do something proactively. You work ahead through implementing precautions. You do things that keep you from falling behind so that our consecration is not lost through careless negligence. Gravity will drop my keys every time. If I let go of my keys, how many times will they fall? Every time. If I drop them a hundred times, they will fall a hundred times. We live in a fallen world and we're sinners. And if we do not have the Spirit hold us up, spiritual gravity will take over. Amen? Yeah, that's how it works. And so we have this point in our passage that spiritual consecration involves our intentional preparation through the implementation of precautions. So our, uh, our con consecration <laughs> is not lost through careless negligence. It's a challenge of parallel wording there, trying to make that happen, right? Look at verse 44. You're going to see they were meticulous in this. They were careful in this. They were proactive in this. They were prepared in this. Verse 44, on that day, men were appointed. They said, these are the right guys. Let's get them in here. And, and over the storerooms, there's stuff that needs to be taken care of. And over the contributions, there's gifts that need to be taken care of. And the first fruits and the tithes, to gather them in the portions required by the law. So there was a reason and a way and a method they were going to follow. For the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields and the towns, and for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. There were rules and functions and particular people and particular roles. Verse 45, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers. Those special people and special roles were doing their special tasks for the glory of God. According to the command of David and his son Solomon, that is what was laid out in Scripture. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave a daily portion to the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart. That was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart. That was what for the priests, the sons of Aaron. Here's the deal. In those verses, don't miss this. The people set up godly systems. And then they appointed godly people to supervise the ongoing, continuous implementation of those godly systems so that all of their hard-fought gains would be maintained. It doesn't do any good to women to battle and then go home and let the enemy retake over. And Christians do that all the time. If we show up for the fight, if we fight God's way and we get God's victory, then we get lazy and the enemy comes right back in. We're going to see that very clearly next week in our final chapter. We're going to see tragically in the last chapter that as soon as Nehemiah, the godly leader, was, had to return to Persia like he promised the potentate who allowed him to come initially, as soon as Nehemiah left, all the godly protocols slowly become abandoned and they cease providing for the kingdom workers. So the Levites ceased doing their kingdom service and the work of God was abandoned. God's storeroom was empty. You're going to see that Tobiah the toady gets a, t a place in the temple. <laughs> You're going to see it's a mess. Now, as uh, Chenwa Achebe aptly wrote, things fall apart. I knew that would work for you. You have a literary reference. It's just for you. For the rest of you, if you take world literature, Chinwa Achebe is a famous African author, and he wrote a famous book about how things fall apart in his country, in his village. 
And so we must understand that spiritual consecration involves our intentional preparation through the implementation of wise precautions. Friends, a church that took decades to build can be destroyed in months, amen? A reputation that took a lifetime to build can be ruined through a few poor decisions, amen? A nation that spent generations progressing can quickly regress if we are not careful to implement godly guidelines and put servant-hearted leaders to apply those guidelines. Now, just as it is true that spiritual consecration involves our intentional preparation, so too it is true, point five today, our final kernel of truth that we must digest, ingest, and then walk in. Spiritual consecration involves our immeasurable satisfaction in God's powerful ability to thwart Satan by irony. That's a mouthful. I'll explain it in a second. Let me say it one more time. Spiritual consecration involves our immeasurable satisfaction in God's powerful ability to thwart Satan by irony. Satan is a fool, and he sets up a foolish kingdom, right? Uh, He's the ruler of this kingdom of the earth. Uh, He has his own worshipers. Uh, He sets up a false system in the end of time when he's given a lot of opportunity. He has a false prophet. They worship a false beast. Everything, he's, he's making a caricature of all that God has made beautiful. And God has a sense of humor. And God likes to use irony to show that he's in control. Do you remember Jacob, Jacob the deceiver? Do you know how Jacob got cured of his deceiving? He went to go work for Laban who had a Ph.D. in deception. And he learned that, you know what, I don't want to be like him. And God does that a lot. He does it so much, there's a word for it, talionic justice. It goes like this, an eye for a... Uh-huh. It, it is that God brings things uh, to be that ought to be, that are just, but he often does it with flair and irony. Earlier we noted that there were music and there were ministers, and there was much marching. Now, where did they march? On what did they march? Verse 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. They were marching on top of the wall. There were two massive choirs. I also assigned two large choirs, and I gave thanks, and one proceeded this way, and one proceeded that way. One was led by Nehemiah. One was led by Ezra. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people marching on top of the wall. God's people, they played their instruments while marching on the wall. They raised their voices in song while marching on the wall. They blew their trumpets while marching on the wall. You remember the wall that Tobiah the Toady said in Nehemiah chapter 4, a wall that a fox was supposed to be able to topple. I want you to flip back in just a moment and let's relish the irony of having his people fill Jerusalem and its vicinity with jubilation that emanates with that which God's enemies used to denigrate. Turn to Nehemiah 4, it's on page 506, Nehemiah 4, and I want you to remember the taunts of the enemy so long ago that seemed so painful and powerful when the wall wasn't built, when God wasn't done working, but the insults were coming thick and fast. Nehemiah 4, page 506, Satan's minions were mocking, there was two of them, Sanballat and Tobiah. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? 
can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble burned as they are? And here's the other guy, Tobiah the toady, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side. Yeah, you can see the toady, right? Yeah, lay it on him, Sambalot. Tobiah gets his little word in. What they're building, if even a fox went on it, he'd break it down, this wall of stone. And in the face of those taunts, look at the next verse. Look at how the people of God responded to the hateful, haughty taunts of the enemy. Nehemiah 4.4, hear us, O God, for we are despised. No sugarcoating it. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own head. Now we stand in Nehemiah 12.41. And God heard those prayers, didn't he? And God answered those prayers, didn't he? On a wall supposedly not fit for a fox, hundreds, perhaps thousands of Hebrews were marching and praising God, and it was reverberating all around, and the people that hated it couldn't help but hear it. Nehemiah 12, 43 says, On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And the women and the children also rejoiced, and the sound of the rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Friends, don't lose heart today in 2019. When folks mock our faith, there's nothing new under the sun. The Apostle Peter warned us in 2 Peter 3 that in these last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, Everything goes on as it's been since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's words, the heaven existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, the Bible asks, what kind of people ought you to be? The Bible says you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of Christ's coming. And speed its coming. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Jesus. It sounds a lot like consecration, doesn't it? I want to leave you with two final ironies in Scripture because God loves ironies, and these are the two that God laid on me to share with you. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians, and the second is found in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians asks this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. 
Friends, did you know that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary? He likes to use old men to stare down Pharaohs, 80-year-old Moses. And he likes to use little boys like David to take down Goliaths. Let God use you this week despite your weakness so that his strength can be seen. Don't listen when the, when the enemy goes, oh, well, you, you just don't have the strength to do this, say this, be this. That's right. But Jesus does. Let God use you despite your ineloquence that the simple gospel might be clearly heard by your witness. Moses said, I'm slow of speech. Acts says he was mighty in speech. What changed? God working through him. Some of you are here today and you've been asking God to move in a certain area, remove a barrier, overcome an obstacle, or take away some crushing weight that's on your heart. And perhaps God has not seen fit to do that yet. And I want you to know you're in good company. Something similar happened to the Apostle Paul. This is our second irony I want you to leave you with today. Paul was three times denied his prayer. He three times prayed, Lord, remove the thorn in my flesh. This hurts. It's an encumbrance. It's holding me back. I can't get my mind off of it. Three times he prayed. And this is how God answered in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. You sang about it. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. We'd all like to be strong supermen, but Christ is usually seen through me when they realize that only Jesus could do it, not me. So Paul concluded that this thorn that God wouldn't take away, that was keeping him humble, keeping him needy, keeping him tender, and he was getting God's grace to deal with it instead of being removed from it. Paul concluded, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you know why? Because when you're weak, you lean up next to Jesus, and he's got all the strength in the universe available. In light of these ironies, let's pray today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, you are so good to us. Help us overflow with intentional jubilation over the fact that you are so good to us. Help us this week to dwell on whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable and if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise. Lord, help us to think on these things in a world that tries to put our mind on things that don't matter. Refocus our minds to what matters. Help us to intentionally include others in our joyous chorus for Jesus. Let us be a perfume in the room, not a stench in the trench. May we be a lighthouse, not an outhouse this week for the fame of your name. We ask, Lord, that you would make us a peculiar people, as you write in Scripture. The kind that shine for Jesus like bright stars in a wicked world. Make us the kind of people that are effective and productive. Make us attractive ambassadors of our beautiful King. Less of us and more of Jesus. We ask that you'd purify us from the things that would defile us. Help us this week to choose the, the greater over the lesser when the tempter comes a-calling. Enable us to implement wise precautions to assure our ongoing consecration. 
And let us savor the many ironies of the reality that we do all this not in our strength, but in Christ's strength. Let us learn to lean on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Remind us again, Lord, that Christ is our hope and glory, and that apart from You, we can truly do nothing. Amen.